Well, it only took one episode for things to fall apart. Unfortunately, Paul was called in for business at work, so filling in for him today is... Hey, regular Greg Anderson, one of the hosts of the Armchair Adventurer podcast alongside Kane and Paul. That's right. (laughs) Uh, Greg and I have formulated an episode thematically linked a little more than... Well, I guess it's more thematically linked than locationally linked, like the last one. Yes. We're going to be talking about some airlines that none of us or anybody listening will likely ever be able to fly on that uh, have a little more going on than you might expect. I'm going to leave it kind of vague because I don't know exactly what you're getting into and you know very little about what I'm getting into. That's correct. be kind of a learning experience for both of us, as all of these episodes always are. Indeed. So, Greg, could you maybe give just a real short elevator pitch about what you're talking about after me? Well, um, it's no secret that... uh, the U.S. built a, a lot of planes, to say the least, in uh, World War II. And uh, those planes, not, you know, I mean, a good number of them got shot down. But uh, we had quite the excess of planes. And there were uh, plenty of government agencies that were interested in taking on some of those surplus planes um, to use for their own. Yeah. Um, for various reasons. Uh, but some of them... You know, a little more benign than others, but we're going to be talking about some of the less benign ones and uh, some of the trouble that that has gotten the United States into as well. And I'm going to be starting it off with a shorter topic, not necessarily nefarious, but definitely mysterious. And I'm not going to give you a pitch because I might as well just get right into it. But I will say is it's an airline just called Janet. I mean, she sounds pretty. Wow. She's my lady. Uh, now, let's see here. I'm going to start at kind of a weird spot, but I'm going to arrive where I need to. Janet, nobody really knows why it is called Janet. The first kind of idea, which was pretty stupid, it was a backronym and not a very clever one either because it's just another non-existent terminal, was what uh, a lot of people <laughs> probably half-jokingly called it. A more realistic, I couldn't find if this was actually confirmed in any way. I think it's just a lot more realistic of a guess than that first one. Joint Air Network for Employee Transportation. That sounds pretty reasonable. Yeah. and um, the, I, re- I really enjoy that backronym, though. That's, that's pretty good. Just another non-existent terminal. Yeah. And there's a, there's a reason for that. Because the only reason this kind of entered the public eye, I guess, is people would see these planes because this was at, is it McCarran Air Force, or I'm sorry, uh, airport in Las Vegas? That's correct. So when you're landing there, you can see this private terminal that's, you know, uh, barbed wired, but I guess that's not really a surprise given that it's an airport. Pretty much everything is barbed wired. But it's an entirely separate terminal with its own parking lot that would fill up at the beginning of the day and empty out at the end of the day. And there was... About 11 planes there, all with the same paint job, just white plane with a red stripe down the side. And so people started to look into this a little bit. You know, when I see a white plane with a red stripe, I think it might be a promotional plane for a Jamaican beer company, not some some sort of government bullshit. (laughs) Uh, So what they first found out when they looked into this was that 
the airline named Janet was owned and operated by a company called EG&G. Now, are you familiar with that company at all, Greg? I am not. EG&G is Edgerton, Germishausen, and Greer. I certainly have never heard of that. And that is a defense contractor that was actually heavily involved with the development and testing of nuclear weapons in the 50s and 60s. Oh, okay. So what you're saying is they're probably part of one of the... uh... One of the hundreds and hundreds of companies have been gobbled up by larger defense industry giants. Well, yes, um, that is exactly. Who are they part of now? ACOM. So they were eventually purchased by the URS Corporation, which was another one of those in 2002, which in turn was purchased by ACOM in 2014. Okay. I had never heard of ACOM. They're more than they're more really just like an engineering firm that does a lot of government contract work. They had a pretty big revenue. So is that just A-C-O-M? A-E-C-O-M. A-E-C-O-M. Okay. Now, so what they found out when you could look up, and it was a matter of public record, that the owner of the airline was the, quote-unquote, special projects division of EG&G. That sounds interesting. What kind of special projects are we talking about here? So EG&G. Also, I just want to point, sorry, I don't don't mean to, well, I do mean to interrupt, but I just looked up ACOM. Yeah, I mean it's pretty it's pretty crazy that I'd never heard of them, and they're uh, number one fifty seven on the Fortune five hundred. They have eighty seven thousand employees. Yeah, that that's ridiculous. Like uh, you you would think that a company that large, I would have at least heard of them, but nope. They just like oh now I see okay like it makes a little bit of sense because like you were saying they are they're more of an engineering firm. Yeah, like it looks like a lot of the when I think when I was thinking engineering and the kind of thing we're talking about, you know. I wasn't thinking necessarily construction engineering, but it seems like a good number of the projects that are listed here are like dams and airports and stadiums. Like like the Barclays Center, for example, oh, is sure. one of the ones that they built. And like they were heavily involved at the 2016 Summer Olympics, a um, bunch of other stuff. So that makes sense. So I, I bet they're behind a lot of stuff that I'm familiar with, you know, but I just haven't heard of the company itself. So anyway, let's hear more about their special projects division. Yeah. So, you know, people looked into that and uh, I know I'm kind of dancing around it, but I'm just about to arrive where I'm going to explicitly say what this is. But EG&G did a lot of work for the Atomic Energy Commission, especially their high speed photography was used to image the implosion tests for the Manhattan Project. Okay. And... EG&G, together with Raytheon, did extensive work in the Nevada test site. So people started putting two and two together, Greg, and what, what is near the Nevada test site that would be shrouded in secrecy? Is there something you could think of? A lake, perhaps. Uh, Groom Lake. Groom Lake. Better known as, drumroll please. Area 51. There now, I know we're not going to touch on Area 51. This is specifically about this airline. Area 51 is, that's old hat. The way people were able to confirm this, at least, you know, beyond reasonable doubt, is since this is technically a civilian airline, and it is not, even though the planes are registered to the Department of the Air Force, the airline itself is a civilian entity. And uh, a lot of that flight path stuff and information about planes and all that is is a matter of public record and so we do know 
that they own six Boeing 737s and five Beechcraft prop planes. And the kind of going idea is that this airline, the whole point is for the civilian employees that work at Area 51 and surrounding sites that I'll get into. It's how they get to work, basically. Because you can't just, you know, you can't just have a line of cars. There's probably thousands of government employees that work there. And you can't just have all of them drive out to the Nevada desert in a big uh, convoy, right? Yeah, you'd think they'd buy an Airbus, but I guess they went with Boeing. <laughs> um, yeah, they actually all six of the Boeing seven thirty sevens are purchased were purchased from Air China. Weird. Yeah, I mean, not that weird considering like the global nature of air travel today. But I mean, you know, you'd think they'd find one mm-hmm. you know, a little a little closer to home. Yeah, maybe you know, maybe they just fell off the back of the truck or something. Got them cheap, got them real cheap. So you can you can track all of these flights. And even on the Wikipedia page, you can see the tail numbers of all these planes. And you can track them, and they've figured out where some of these are going. Now, there's four main spots that they go. Two of them are unconfirmed, basically, because the thing is, the two places they go that are, you can see, you can follow the flight path and see them take off and land there, is the Air Force Plant 42. Have you heard of that? No. That's just a manufacturing, uh, Air Force manufacturing plant where they made, like, they make certain planes. Okay. Um, Probably stealth, stealth planes, I think. Yes, yeah. And the Tonopah test range, which okay. was also, you know, where they tested a lot of weapons and planes yep. for, you know, for the bend, past, like, bended, 50 years, 60 years. Bend, I've been to Tonopah a number of times. Really? Yep. Like... Just driven through, really. Oh, okay. I and I, my brother had a friend from there. It's a uh, if you're going down like Death Valley, from from Reno, it's a uh, one of the places people typically stop. Oh, sure. Um, I okay. Well, now I got to ask. Or Vegas. I Do guess, you know usually. what the P A H means? The PA, because I know there's also the Ivan PA, that solar plant, right by Vegas. That huge solar plant is the Ivan PA. I think it has. I think it's like local Native American tribe names. Okay. Well, it's it's not the tribe names, but I think it's like, I believe those are, um, you know. I'm going to guess the then that be PA, like the paw is like language. some sort of geographic feature or something would be my Probably. guess. Perhaps Valley or something like that. Yeah. All I know is that Tonopah is like a, a big gold mining area as well. Okay. Because uh, I know when my mom was, my, bleh, when my mother was working for a gold company, uh, she had to do some work for a company downtown Paw as well. Mm-hmm. Now, I guess really, if I can be honest, most of what I have is like the evidence or the evidence and just kind of stuff related to it being for area 51, just cause you know, obviously the government isn't just going to come out and say that. Yeah, no, definitely not. And so, even though, I mean, even though it's obviously public record at this point that, you know, Groom, the Groom Lake site exists. It's, yeah. it's well well documented Absolutely. at this point. There was that whole and people went there, you know, like not too yeah, there, the obviously, whole, but though you know, yeah. And I'm you know I'm very surprised that nobody was stupid enough to try and jump a fence or something like that and didn't get shot. Yeah. Um, also very happy that some of the reporting there ended up catching people Naruto running. Because yeah, uh, what a great way to cement your uh, 
your foolishness for for the world to see forever. Absolutely. So you can also listen. I guess in a, in the same way you can use police scanners, you can listen to mm-hmm. the ra- radio chatter from this airline. And so they use code names for the places they're going, and people have figured it out based on where they land. There's two that are not really confirmed. One is sort of confirmed. I'll explain. Air Force Plant 42 is Station 1, is how they the pilots refer to it. The Tonopah Test Range is Station 7. McCarran Airport is Station 9. Groom Lake is Station 3. And the reason they've figured that out is because, and the reason the two of these are unconfirmed, is because on some of the flights, about 15 minutes into the flight, they turn off their transponders. But the place that they turn off their transponders is about three-quarters of a mile southeast of Groom Lake. So pretty much confirmed that one of those is Groom Lake. Okay. But the And that's Station 3. Station 6, however, is also in the area where the transponders are turned off, but nobody knows what it is. Okay. So that's just something to think about. Hmm. And also... Once they get into, um, what is it? Shit, I'm going to have to look this up. I'm sorry. Well, one thing I'm curious about, do you happen to know um, if there's any sort of pattern as far as which planes go where? No. Okay. There isn't. Because I do know that in that same area, I was I was reading something earlier today, or listening to something earlier today about, um, there's basically a drone base that's also in that, in that same area. Ooh. Um, that is not like publicly acknowledged at all. Um, okay. And the, and I know that it's got a really short runway, like 5,000 feet or something like that. Oh, okay. Um, which is like way too short for any kind of jet aircraft. Um, at least like commercial jet aircraft. Yeah. You need like, something light. Um, yeah. Uh, like, uh, what is it? It's not VTOL, uh, STOL, STOL, short takeoff and landing. Oh, okay. Um, like planes that are equipped for that type of stuff could probably land there and i can imagine you were saying they were like to haviland uh like prop planes that they had as well beachcraft yeah or beachcraft excuse me um i would not be surprised if those were capable of landing at like a five thousand foot runway uh considering i know that like the predator drones that are likely what are flown out of there um those are those are prop driven as well mm-hmm. um but i know that like that base is not necessarily confirmed by the u.s government so that that might be potentially one of the places they're flying okay and so they use kind of a code which is interesting because it's so it was so easily cracked that it's it's like why even use it because once they enter what i was looking for is the name r4808 okay which is the restricted airspace 4808 north is the restricted airspace around area 51 it's the most tightly governed airspace probably second only to, like, Washington, D.C. I was going to say maybe over the White House. Yeah. (laughs) Um, When planes get close enough, they, these planes, not any planes, these planes get close enough, they hand over tower control from McCarran to Groom Lake. And when that happens, they stop going by, say, so let's, let's take, for example, there was a flight, a Janet Airlines flight, and it was Janet 307 was the flight okay. name. Once it switches over to Groom Lake Control, they get rid of that flight name. They assign a random noun, and the last two digits of the flight number 
but they add 15. So for instance, like Janet 307, once it went over to Groom Lake Control, they would call the flight Avalanche 22 or something equivalent, you know, something like that. Okay. But hmm. it's like, I wonder why they even do that if that's so uh, so easily picked out. Yeah, I was going to say, that seems like that's not a particularly... Well, the the random noun thing is bizarre. Um, I wonder if they have a list of nouns that they use, but it's like... I chose that one randomly, yeah. The Wikipedia example used bunny. Okay. But I guess, in a way... I'm kind of making a point with that because they've had to play they've had to play an interesting game basically because it's a it's a military installation but they're using a civilian airline to take civilians so they have to be a little you know they can't just like or at least they don't just approach pilots and say would you like to work for Area 51 So what I've got here are two job listings that were Uh-oh. posted and one of these is from 2000, the early 2000s, probably okay. before 2002, because that was when EG&G was taken over by uh, URS. Okay. And this is an EG&G. This looks like it was scanned in from like a newspaper classified. <laughs> um, but Area 51 workers needed. <laughs> well, see this this one's a little more this one's a little more plain because it says like it, it it says boilerplate job posting stuff but then there's like uh you must meet eligibility requirements for access to classified information okay but then this other one that i love and this was this was from much more recently this was from 2010 and this is a urs corporation job posting this was on their on their website and i'm going to read the minimum requirements section to you okay okay it is very normal, but the last sentence, the last requirement kind of gives it away. The minimum requirements are high school graduate, present a neat professional appearance, must pass company-operated jet aircraft emergency training and initial flight attendant training, and maintain currency as a flight attendant, must be able to perform all physical duties without difficulty and without assistance, must be able to push and pull heavy hinged aircraft doors up to 60 pounds. Must comply with company specified dress code and uniform guidelines. Must possess effective oral communication skills, including good public speaking skills. Possession of good basic math and computer skills mandatory. Must be able to pass a single scope background check to qualify for and maintain a top secret security clearance. Why would a flight attendant need that? I mean, that's the only reason if they're flying into like a right. top secret military base. That's like. Just, just, yeah, that, that sticks out like a sort of <laughs> yeah, I mean, because it's like if you weren't, it's one of those things where you have to you have to have the info and then see that. Because if you saw that, you'd just be like, oh, okay, well, I guess they're doing some cool stuff over there at the URS Corporation. There has been one accident, one plane accident. Okay. Janet Airlines. It was one of their Beechcraft 1900C Uh all five people on board died when uh-huh. the pilot suffered sudden cardiac arrest seven miles southeast of the Tonopah test range. Uh, yeah, rural Nevada, not a great place to be wrecking your plane. Yeah. Not a lot of water to land in. So, again, 
I apologize. There isn't much to this, but I do also want to throw in. There's one thing that happened pretty recently that is, I don't know if it was intentionally involving Janet Airlines or, or what, because there's somebody tried to blow up fuel tanks at the Janet terminal. And there's some conspiracies around this person. Do you think you could guess who it was if it was recently? Recently. Is this some QAnon nut? No. Okay. Not that recently, but within okay. the past few years. Um, like, is this a, a single person, or are you talking about some kind of outfit? It was a single person, but the conspiracies would lead you to believe that maybe it was an outfit. You know, there's so many directions okay. you can take that in. So what I'll do, Greg, is I'll tell you, what if somebody took shots at those fuel tanks from the Mandalay Bay Hotel and Casino? Oh. Stephen Paddock before, or not before, but, you know, during his whole thing, took shots at fuel tanks at the Janet Terminal. During that yeah. during that shooting? Yes. Like from his hotel room? Yes. It's, you can, you uh, can see... Uh, the terminal the from, terminal from, from that room. Yeah. Wow. It's that close. So he, and, and it's presumed that it was on purpose that he took shots at them. Yes. Cause it's in a, shot. it's in a different direction from the, Oh wow. The like concert, you know, I can't say that I'm the most surprised that that, uh, would be the case. That dude was clearly off his rocker. Mm-hmm. Um, have you heard any of the like conspiracies about it? About the shooting? Yeah. I mean, of course. I mean, but I mean, nothing that I've seen that has had enough merit to convince me in any way, shape, or form. Yeah, I haven't I haven't done enough research, but I know I've listened to like the True Anon podcast. Not only ironically named after QAnon, by the way. Very good podcast. But uh, okay. there's, I think there's some evidence to suggest that it was possibly an arms deal gone wrong with the Saudis. Like his, like what he was up there doing? Yeah. Hmm. And that that was like the shooting was to kind of provide clear escape for the actual members of the deal. And he was like the fall guy, basically. Well, I mean. not. Re- I mean, that's not what the episode is about, but I just figured I'd mention it since we're talking yeah, about no, that. Yeah, no, I, now I may have to go check out that True and On podcast because. You, you, know, you absolutely should. Gotcha. Well. Um, Do you know who Piss Pig Granddad is? No, Have but I'm intrigued. That? That's uh, so that's a, a Twitter guy named Brace Belden, and okay. he had a he had kind of a weird Twitter account. But then he left the country to go fight uh, for the rebels in Syria. And then it's an American he, dude, yeah. And then when he came back, Crazy. he's one of the two people that hosts the podcast. So holy shit! All right, well that's. I'll have to give that a listen. <laughs> that yeah. guy sounds certainly has some interesting stories, like regardless of the podcast, right. I'm sure. Cause the only, um, yeah, I can't say I've ever personally heard of anybody who's gone over there to, f- to, to fight that has been an American. Cause there's one dude that I right. <clears throat> used to follow on Facebook, um, from, I want to say, say you Swedish or Finnish maybe. Um, who went and he was fighting with Pershmerga forces. Yeah. Cause he used to put, he used to post stuff like regularly on, on Facebook. He was, um, fighting with the Kurds. 
Well, sorry, Greg, much much in line with the last episode we did of the regular, of the flagship, mm-hmm. the Rockefeller. This one didn't have a ton of meat on its bones, but uh, I know you've got you've got some juicy shit lined up. So take your time to transition in. This can be totally removed. But uh, that's all of the information I have on Janet. All right. Well, um, frankly, I don't need a ton of transition time. And um, as far as the juiciness goes, like um, all the stuff that I'm going to talk about, like none of this is conspiratorial necessarily. Yeah, and I guess I didn't mean juicy in that shit, just like meaty. There's Yeah, no, there's definitely... There's definitely a lot here. Yeah. Um, so the way I'll start this is, um, well, uh, as I mentioned at the top of the podcast, um, my section here is going to be talking about, um, well, it really starts with um, an excess of airplanes at the end of World War II and what to do with them. Um, the United States built, you know, tens of thousands of airplanes um, and and helicopters, of course. Um, well, not necessarily helicopters. World War II, that's not really right era there, but. Helicopter will come into play uh, later on in the story. But, uh, like, the very, the overarching topic here is going to be more airlines um, that may not be what they seem at the surface level. Was um, was Korea the first time we really used helicopters in combat? I believe, uh, oh. I believe so, yeah. But okay. not really in combat so much as, like, transport. Right, yeah, but in uh, war times. Yeah, but as, as far as, like, mounted weapons and things like that, that goes. That wasn't until Vietnam, really. Yeah, that's really when that took off. I think that was like pretty much developed in between there. Um, Makes sense. Like and Vietnam years. was like our yeah our first like fifteen uh, really. Yeah, I know for for a fact that like helicopter gunships, like the H sixty four Apache, I think was like pretty much the first Desert Storm. Good lord, what, how long has the Apache been around? Oh no, I think that was I think that was Vietnam, man. Oh really? Yeah, um, I could be wrong about that. Um, yeah, no, I can 80, see it. 80, 86, yeah. Oh, okay. So um I feel like there's a there's a predecessor to that that we had during Vietnam though. Um, oh, I'm sure. Yeah. Cuz I for well, I, from this like thing I'm looking at right here, the age 56 Cheyenne. Oh, okay. Oh, that got canceled. Anyway, mm. we we could talk about this another time yeah. or not, <laughs> but um anyway, Vietnam was very clearly that you know, the helicopter war. That was one of its nicknames. So um, very much a central part of uh, what was going on in Vietnam. Lots of lots of Hueys, lots of Chinooks. Yeah, I was gonna say, like, what do you think of when you think Vietnam? You hear yeah. fortunate son playing in the background, some guy um, shooting a mounted M60 off the side of the Huey. You know, yeah, that's what I think of at least. But um, so, um, I'm not gonna beat around the bush here. Um, everything I'm gonna talk about. Uh, is heavily involved with the CIA. Um, You're going to find that a lot, folks. <clears throat> yeah, the CIA. You're going to see those fingers. letters a lot <laughs> if you look into <laughs> this kind of stuff. Yeah, and um, like we we've mentioned this before that like you know these little side pods that we're doing here um, are definitely. You know, they dip their toes in the in the realm of conspiracy, but like what I'm going to be talking about today is stuff that's all, you know, factual, uh, you know, most of it public record, um, you know, stuff that would have been conspiracy at the time, but today is pretty much just CIA history. Uh, and I think you'll find that 
throughout the CIA history. That's pretty much uh, going to be the case uh, the entire time. There's plenty of things that have been, um, you know, alleged that haven't been completely proven, but um, I think that, you know, as time goes on and more and more stuff gets released, uh, you know, 30 years down the road from when it happened, uh, we'll find out that even more of the conspiracy stuff that, you know, is kind of somewhat confirmed at this point will get confirmed in fact. If we already know that things like MK Ultra and MK Naomi happened, I can't wait to find out what we don't know about, you know? Yeah, yeah. And, like, I'm not going to be that kind of person who's, you know, sitting around, like, freaking out about stuff that, you know, may or may not have happened. I'm just, like, I, I too, am extremely curious to learn about the things like that that have managed to stay under wraps. Part of me thinks that, you know, some of the bigger things, like, you know, like MKUltra, um, I guess that wasn't, like, a huge experiment, but... I feel like just the way that modern technology works and, like, communication works, um, I feel it could be a lot easier to get your word out there if something crazy happened. So either either the CIA has gotten really good about hiding what they're doing, or they've really knocked it off with some of the zanier stuff that they were doing. Um, because they just can't get away with things like that as much anymore. It used to be really... I mean, we even mentioned this in our in our uh, the Rockefeller pod we just put out. Um, you used to be able to get away with a lot more, like you know, yeah. Rock, Rockefeller's dad had a whole second family, and then somehow managed to convince them to live together. That's all. Neither here nor there, but like, you can't like. I mean, there are definitely people that get away with that kind of thing now, but like, that was not an uncommon occurrence, like having a second wife and kids somewhere else. Mm-hmm. Especially if you like a traveling sales job, or, like, could you imagine trying to get away with that today? Uh, yeah, or you could, you could, uh, if you accidentally killed someone, you could just move like four hours away and be fine, yeah. and nobody you could would probably ever... get a... <laughs> exactly. Yeah, and like before ballistic forensics type stuff, like, I mean, pretty easy to get away with killing somebody a long time ago. Like, I mean, you were just oh, saying, definitely. but like not even having to move far away. Just... I mean, how many victims did Jack the Ripper have? I know that was a while ago, but, like, still don't know who that guy was. Mostly prostitutes, correct? Yeah. Okay. Um, well, yeah, I think that's, like, just kind of a, a big component of, like, um, not even just, not even mass murder, but, like, the reason that serial killers are so hard to catch is that, like, when you, when you have no social connection to the person that you've killed... Yeah, because it gets, it gets really, really difficult to figure out who did it. You have to fuck up pretty bad to like, you know, if you if you just killed one person with no motive, you'd have to have made a, a mistake to get caught. Yeah, basically. Or wind up in front of a camera or something like that, which well, I, well, I which I'm a, constituting categorizing yeah. mistake. Yeah. Um, but yeah, like it's. But then again, like things like I mean just like cell phone tracking technology, things like mm-hmm. that. Like it gets so, it's gotten so like, not that I'm by any means upset at the fact that it's harder to kill people. Than it no, used but to there be. is, there is also a downside to having that much, uh, presence and like having oh, that, I mean, that much, um, ability to be found basically. Oh, absolutely. Like, I mean, like the revelations that Snowden has brought, has, has brought out, like that's very clear that, at least to most people, that things have gone a step too far. Um, 
even if that does mean that it's drastically more difficult to kill people, you know, yeah, or start a terrorist organization or what have you. Perhaps though we've we've waxed poetic enough about the surveillance state. Perhaps, uh, and let's move on to CIA airline matters. So, um, starting out my notes here, um, as we all know, the CIA has done quite a bit of shady business throughout the years. Um, but where we're going to start our story is again, uh, towards the tail end of World War, World War II. Um, the CIA, do you know when they were founded, Kane? I want to say a little bit after. I don't know the exact year, but weren't they like the DIA before that? And before that, they were like the, I don't know, were they an offshoot of the OSS or something? Perhaps, yeah. I, I don't really know a ton about the, the history of the CIA. Um, I've mostly just dabbled into that, um, you know, tangentially. I, just because trying to research CIA topics directly ends up leading you down rabbit hole after rabbit hole. And that yeah. gets quite time-consuming. The, time the best I can do for you is I think it was during the Eisenhower presidency because okay. I think John Foster Dulles was the first, and I've seen pictures of him talking with Eisenhower when he was president. Okay. Um, give me like five seconds. I don't actually have a proper answer to this question. Uh, 1947, September 18th. So um, that pretty much, like, now that I'm looking at this, this is like, the the one of the one of the main companies i'm going to talk about actually like i mean it wasn't even it wasn't even three years since the cia was starting before they ended up purchasing this company to use as a shell company so wow yeah it was like 1950 when they purchased it (laughs) so it's like two and a half years um so yeah uh like i said my uh my section here is going to focus on some of the puppet organizations particularly um air service uh, companies that the agency uh, purchased and ran throughout the years for some of their various uh, expeditions. So um, the reason I actually started reading about this starts uh, at a small um, air installation uh, currently known as Pinal Air Park. That's P-I-N-A-L in uh, Pinal County, Arizona, which is a county that is uh, located um, just kind of sandwiched in between um, like the Phoenix metro area and the Tucson metro area. Penal Air Park itself, uh, as the crow flies, is approximately 28 miles northwest of downtown Tucson. Um, and today, the airport mostly functions as a boneyard for civilian commercial aircraft, kind of similar to the military counterpart at uh, davis Monthan Air Force Base, which is about five miles southeast of downtown Tucson. And that's the one that's um, called the boneyard, right? I mean... That's kind of a general term at this point, but um, the one that, if you think of, you know, the yeah, Boneyard, yeah. like, colloquially, um, yeah, that's the one at davis Mountain. Okay. Um, but that one is, like, exclusively military planes, um, including helicopters and whatnot, too. Yeah. Uh, but the one at Penal Air Park is, like, just commercial jets and things like that. Um, like, uh, there's a there's a list on the, the Wikipedia page for the air, uh, the air park. Uh, that lists, like, companies that have aircraft there. I know there's, um, like, a good number of 737s. Um, mostly just, like, stuff from defunct airways, but there's uh, a handful of um, planes from currently existing ones as well. But that's pretty much what it's there for today. Uh, as you can imagine, uh, a small airport in between Phoenix and Tucson, you know, isn't necessarily going to get a ton of traffic, but... Um, 
the rest of what goes there is typically just general aviation stuff, you know. So not commercial traffic at all, really, or or freight or anything like that. But based on the fact that there's like 737s there, this clearly is not a small airport. Like, you know, your general yeah. aviation small airports aren't going to have the type of facilities where a 737 could be landing in the first place. So as you might imagine, uh, Penal Air Park wasn't always a general aviation um, or boneyard type uh, location. Uh, Penal Air Park was constructed in 1942 as uh, Marana, or Marana, I, I have no idea how the proper pronunciation is, Army Airfield. Um, it served as a training base for the 389th Army Air Force Base Unit, um, but was closed in 1948 after the establishment of the U.S. Air Force. Um, I say closed loosely because the airport never really ceased functioning or anything like that. Um it uh, just ended up kind of changing hands. The, the county took the deed to the to the airport, um, and uh, almost immediately, um, contractors set up shop there and operated a training school for the U.S. Air Force. So, I mean, it never really stopped being a military installation, at least for the foreseeable time afterwards, um, which makes sense considering um, they have some, like I said, uh, very long runways, not to mention they had, like, I know they ran septic and water lines and all sorts of stuff, which, you know, sounds basic now, but if you're talking about 1948 Central Arizona, um, like running sewer and water lines out there was probably no easy task. It probably cost the government a, a good amount of money. Right. Because that area was pretty pretty desolate at that point. Neither of those cities were anywhere near as large as they are today. Um. Oh, a separate thing that's completely unrelated to this, but Kane, did you know that part of Arizona was uh, part of the Confederacy? Really? Yeah, it was claimed by the Confederacy, and there was a number of uh, number of battles all around the state. I, uh, I did not know that until I happened to stumble upon a, a town that was the capital of the uh, Confederate state of Arizona. Oh my god! I don't think like I don't think there were slaves there or anything like that necessarily, but I think that it was like, I mean, it was like. I know that uh, at some point during the Civil War, the uh, like the Confederate government moved um, to El Paso to avoid getting attacked, and then they got attacked in El Paso, uh, so then they moved to San Antonio. But like, I mean, when I say Confederate state of Arizona, it was basically like Southern Arizona and Southern uh, New Mexico, because New Mexico I don't think was a state at that point. I don't think either of them were. I think they were both territories. Or excuse me, it was the uh, Confederate Territory of Arizona, not Confederate State of Arizona. But anyway, they just kind of claimed a good chunk of it and skirmished over it. But yeah, not something I, I, I knew before. No. Um, which actually makes sense because like, I know that Nevada was one of the reasons that Nevada became a state. The, their, their population numbers were kind of fudged to make it so they could join the Union, so they could supply troops, and part of that was probably to go fight people down in Arizona. But... Uh, Anyway, I digress. Moving back to uh, CIA business. Well, moving on from my musings about uh, the Confederacy in Arizona there, um, we will fast forward past our uh, our talk about Penal County Airport. Uh, there's only one main reason that I was talking about that, and that is, uh, again, the reason I stumbled upon all of this, uh, this CIA information uh, was due to reading about this airport. So... Um, 
turns out that uh, one of the things that this Air Force or the this former Air Force base is uh, known for is as being the base of several airlines. Uh, airlines that, again, as mentioned at the top of the uh, the episode, you uh, never will and never have and never will be able to mm-hmm. uh, go on board of. But uh, frankly, you wouldn't have even if they were legitimate airlines, uh, due to the fact that most of these are cargo airlines, oh. uh, unlike unlike Janet. Um, so the first one we're going to talk about, um, I'm going to have to kind of go out of order in my notes here because, uh, like, the first one I wrote about is, like, the first one that I... It's, like, the first one I knew about. But as it turns out, um, they actually were a subsidiary of... Um, I think they all pretty much were subsidiaries of a, a like a holding company. So um, the overarching company, the most important one we're going to start talking about, um, is going to be called Civil Air Transport, CAT. CAT was actually not even based out of Pinal County Airport, but ends up owning a couple of companies that were. So I feel like it's most important to talk about them first. And also, chronologically, it's the one that makes the most sense to start talking about. So Civil Air Transport... Um, it was actually originally a nationalist Chinese uh, airline. Okay. Um, which, at face value, I mean, if, if you just think nationalist Chinese, that sounds like pretty off the wall, but I'm literally just talking about the Kamino Tang. Uh, Wait, when, when are we talking here? Uh, immediately after World War II. So this must be, like, Republic of China. That's what I'm talking about, okay, correct. Yeah. Uh, which is nationalist Chinese, because the Kamino Tang... The, oh, I didn't know that. Uh, that's what that term meant. Yes, the Kuomintang is like the 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 government of the Re- Republic of China. Okay, okay. They were they were the nationalist forces fighting against the communists in in China that lost and then fled to Taiwan. Yeah, I was going to say. One, I was going to say, how did Mao already have airlines <laughs> like that short <laughs> land? But no. Uh, well, there were. They did have some airplanes. Um, you also got to remember there was a lot. There's also a lot of Western operators in China, um, even if the Chinese government and the Republic of China government weren't particularly well developed um, as far as like infrastructure and things like that go, because uh, there's a lot of like land leases going on with Britain and Germany and the United States and things like that, mm-hmm. like going on in China before that, um, which is like how like the Boxer Rebellion happened. You know, like if I remember right, the Boxer Rebellion was like. Chinese martial artists ended up fighting and killing a bunch of British people. If I remember right. Yeah, it's the movie It Man. <laughs> Go ahead. I, I don't know. If, I don't know if you're serious at all. I don't know the plot of It Man. Uh, you know, I was joking, but I might not be wrong. It doesn't. I mean, it might be. Con- it, please continue. At your... least potentially inspired by the Fox Rebellion. <laughs> So anyway, um, it was a, it was a, it was an airline that was owned by the national Chinese, um, like the Kamino Tang. Um, but, uh, it's largely used to just, uh, like bring in food and supplies and troops, uh, to, uh, war torn areas of China to support the Kamino Tang. Um, but, uh, as you may know, uh, towards the end of 1949, beginning of 1950, uh, the Kamino Tang lost the war against the, uh, the Communist uh, Party of China, and uh, fled to Taiwan. So uh, this airline um, not only helped move supplies to Taiwan uh, to help su- supply 
like the people that were fleeing to there, but also helped evacuate many thousands of people from China into Taiwan as well. Um, but as you can imagine, um, having to flee to an island and bring all of your people and equipment there uh, cost quite a lot, and the uh, the Kuomintang was uh, were running quite a, you know quite low on money. So uh, one of the things they figured out that they could do to get some money is to sell this airline. So the assets of the airline, like planes and such, and sorry, I'm I may be getting this kind of mixed up here a little bit okay because i think the sale yeah i am getting this mixed up so i don't think that the airline was actually owned by the commander tang because it was because yeah okay i i definitely got some wires crossed here this is what happens when i end up reading 30 different wikipedia articles about cia owned airlines in one day <laughs> yeah. like the ownership history and things like that i think it start to run together um no so the airline was actually it was founded by two americans um but as far as the functions of the airline go, that was all accurate as far as like, okay, it, yeah. you know, lifting the troops in and things like that. It was just the creation of the airline was what I was getting mixed up about. It was uh, um, two people by the name of Claire Chanel or Chanel, uh, like a French last name. Um, Chanel, that's a French ass name. <laughs> uh, and she know what Whiting... I'm talking about. Hmm? Nothing. <laughs> um, and Whiting uh, Willauer, uh, the former of those two people, was a U.S. aviator um, who served in World War II. And the latter um, was, I believe, also an, uh, an aviator, but most notably uh, later became the U.S. ambassador to Costa Rica and Honduras. Not only was he a U.S. ambassador, he would also more famously become known as a key part of the U.S. involvement in the 1954 Guatemalan coup d'etat. Ah, okay. He's a, he's a big part of that. Uh, another operation yes. heavily supported by the CIA. So, um, anyway, they, they were the founders of the airline um, in 1946. Uh, and they, they again, used um, surplus U.S. Uh, military aircraft from World War II. Um, and uh, eventually... Um, they started to come on some hard times after that, after that move to Taiwan. Um, so what did they do? They ended up selling the airline to the CIA. Uh, the CIA formed Airedale Corporation, which was a, uh, which was formed in Delaware, uh, which would later become the Pacific Corporation, which became a holding company for a number of, uh, CIA-owned airlines. You're telling me the Pacific Corporation is in Delaware? On the Atlantic? Yes, it it doesn't make any sense. No. Uh, What it is, it's just... um, I mean, I don't know if you are familiar, but, like, Delaware is, like, a corporate haven. So lots and lots and lots of corporations are incorporated in Delaware. Like, a Delaware corporation is, like, has its own Wikipedia page. You know who helped uh, start that whole thing? I actually don't. Um, Maybe I dare not say. Hmm. Young gentleman by the name of Joseph Biden from Delaware. Oh, really? Yeah. I mean, I knew he was a Delawarean. Yeah, he helped all that, a lot of that loophole stuff, and come to light. Thanks, Joe. Very cool. How very <laughs> neoliberal of you. <laughs> Sorry. Big L liberal. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Um, so, um, 
So yeah, as I mentioned, they helped uh, airlift thousands of people to Taiwan after the de- defeat of the Kuomintang um, and uh, Civil Air Transport, the name of the company. They would go on to be involved in many U.S. entanglements going forward, uh, many of which uh, ended up resulting in the deaths or capture of U.S. citizens. Kind of get them in some hot water down the line. Um, some notable examples of this uh, are... Uh, First, the crash of a C-47 Dakota transport plane, um, which crashed in northeastern China, um, also known as Manchuria, um, after taking off uh, from an airport in Seoul in 1952. Uh, and it was a attempting to rescue an anti-communist Chinese agent, um, and uh, the CAT pilots... Um, weren't really expecting to run into any Chinese forces around there, uh, but apparently they got tipped off and uh, were, they were hit with some uh, some serious small arms fire from Chinese troops uh, when they were flying real low, and uh, they crash-landed near the town of Antu in Jilin province, which is, I think, the not mistaken, the province that borders North Korea. So uh, that, uh, that crash uh, resulted in the deaths of both of the pilots, Robert Snoddy and Norman Schwartz, um, and also led to the capture of the two CIA officers that were on board, a John T. Downey and Richard G. Fechtow. Uh One of the most interesting things about that is that their families were told that uh, they were their plane went down in the sea, uh, and that the plane had been flying from Seoul to Japan to go pick up supplies. But in reality, they were flying a CIA operation over northeastern China slash North Korea and ended up getting shot down. And that was told to not only pilots, families, but also the families of the CIA officers. Again, I mentioned that those CIA officers were still alive. How long do you think it took before those CIA officers ended up getting released? Five years? Almost 20 years Damn. they stayed in captivity with the Chinese and were pretty much nearly constantly interrogated. So, 20 hard years of interrogation by Bummer. the Communist Chinese. Not a fate I would wish upon anyone. Um, Fechtow, uh, Richard G. Fechtow, was released actually unexpectedly, uh, pretty much immediately following Richard Nixon's visit to China in 1972. Um, and then, uh, which is interesting, because they only released one of them, you know? Um, and then Downey, the other uh, the other CIA operative, was only released from China after the U.S. government publicly acknowledged the failed mission, which they did in 1973. So, as mentioned, the t- both the pilots died in that crash, um, and uh, the Chinese government finally allowed the U.S. Department of Defense's um, p- uh, prisoner of war MIA office uh, to conduct an investigation in 2001 to locate the bodies, um, and they found success in identifying the remains of Snotty in 2005, uh, but have failed to locate Schwartz's remains to this day. Whoa. I mean, you got to think about the fact this is a pretty remote area, you know, pretty much along the border with, uh, with uh, North Korea, so super mountainous. Uh-huh. So it's, uh, would not be, it would surprise me if, like, even if like wild animals or something like that drag the bones away or something like that. And again, you got to realize that we're talking about a mission that failed in 1952 and they were looking in 2001. 
Yeah. So it was, it was, it was yeah. like 50 years since that plane had crashed. And again, this is a temperate area. Like there's probably a lot of snow and stuff like that that's going on there. So not really surprising they didn't find the remains. So the Civil Air Transport Company was also involved in many missions in the first Indochina War, um, meaning the one that we weren't involved in, like the 1950s French conflict. Um, and they were mostly just supporting French troops with moving supplies and, you know, troops around. But uh, not always. Uh, so two uh, Civil Air Transport pilots, uh, James B. McGovern Jr. and Wallace Buford, uh, were killed in action during the siege of uh, Dien Bien Phu in May of 1954. Um, they were widely considered, or at least now are considered, uh, the first American casualties of what was later termed the Vietnam War. Because, you know, 1954, that's a good 10 years before the Gulf of Tonkin incident. Right. McGovern's remains uh, were finally recovered in 2002 uh, and then properly identified in 2006, uh, which leads me to believe that Buford's remains were, again, likely never located or, or identified. Another thing that CAT was involved in was actually with uh, some missions in Indonesia in the late 1950s. So if you're unfamiliar with the situation there, there was a rebel permesta movement going on, uh, fighting against the government of Indonesia. Um, and this one seriously resulted in a big political quagmire because uh, the Indonesian Air Force managed to shoot down a B-26 invader, ironic, um, operated by CAT. Um, so the CIA had uh, required that all CIT pilots that were flying in Indonesia to fly, quote-unquote, sterile. Uh, so that means basically they, they were not allowed to have any kind of identifying documentation li linking them to the CIA or the U.S. military or anything like that. Anything other than like civilian paperwork. Um, this was not the case in this incident. Uh, this aircraft was shot down. Uh, the pilot was not killed. And again, he had a whole bunch of documentation on him, including <laughs> like secret CIA orders to be doing what he was doing. So pretty pretty obvious what was going on there to whoever captured him yeah. <laughs> uh, as he was captured by Indonesian uh, military forces, um, which blew the lid open on CIA involvement in Indonesia in this conflict, uh, which ended up leading to the Eisenhower administration pulling all support for the Permesta movement. Um, so the pilot, again, was still in captivity in uh, Indonesia, and actually Bobby Kennedy... Um, managed to negotiate with the Indonesian president, was able to get, uh, negotiate the return of the pilot to the United States. Hell of a politician. So, indeed. So um, that's that's uh, civil air transport. But there's, there's a number of other ones here as well. Um, there's another one, um, the one that actually led me to uh, read about all this, uh, that was based at Pinal Air Park, which was a subsidiary of uh, CAT called Intermountain Airways, which uh, sounds fairly benign, but uh, again... It's just a which wholly owned CIA front company. Which Pardon? mountains are they referring to being between? I imagine um, they were just using that as a name since they were in Arizona and they're pretty much in any direction for a thousand plus miles. There's going to be mountain ranges. So like they're pretty much smack dab in the middle of the mountain west. Okay. Well, southern part of the mountain west, you know, but I think it was mostly just a name they chose because... It Sounds sounded friendly. benign. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and, I mean, they were just air transport in the mountain areas, you know. Yeah. Like, <laughs> Whatever you no can do. Yeah. 
Um, but as far as CIA operations go, it was actually a fairly thinly veiled one of them. Uh, they didn't do... Intermountain themselves didn't run a ton of like CIA, CIA operations since they were pretty much operating out of that Penal Air Park. Um, but one of the most interesting things they did do is Intermountain um, flew, did a lot of the flying to develop... Have you ever heard of the Fulton Skyhook? Uh, no, I have not. It's an incredible piece of technology. Basically... Wait. Um, is it the Skyhook they used... In the Dark Knight, uh, it's been a long time since I've seen the Dark Knight, so I couldn't tell you. Uh, basically, like a magnetic weather balloon to hook onto an airplane for Xville. Yep. Okay. All right. Well, I don't know. Well, I don't need to describe it to you, but for the listeners, yes. Basically, it's like imagine you've got somebody on the ground, most particularly like you know, say you got some sort of uh, undercover operative that's behind enemy lines. Uh, what you do is you get a plane to fly up near them, uh, drop down a uh, package. They open up the package. They uh, use a helium container to fill up a weather balloon um, that's got some other stuff attached to it. And yeah, plane comes flying along. They've got a piece of uh, equipment that's kind of shaped in a V. They aim down and uh, snag that uh, that balloon out of the air, and it manages to hook on to the uh, this like really long nylon rope that's attached to a harness that's attached to you and you get plucked off the ground and yeah to, i mean basically the, the craziest thing to me is the fact that you get like the actual force that's you know pulled on you when that happens you i would think you get like yanked off the ground but as it turns out it's actually a less of a shock to the human body than pulling an air uh, parachute is really okay yeah i and i should say I think I could be wrong, but I think in that in the Dark Knight, I think um, Morgan Freeman's character describes it to Batman as old CIA tech. So that's the whole that reason does it, make sense. Whole yeah, it, t- it tipped off for me. Gotcha. Old for you. <laughs> Poor attempt. Yeah, your movie off but, too. Yeah. Anyway, oh yeah, yeah, you're right. Um, anyway, so that's the Skyhook, which is pretty cool. That was. Um, largely developed at Penal Air Park, and uh, a lot of the flights were done by Intermountain for that. Uh, for that, Go figure. Um, uh, another CIA-adjacent uh, airline, this one's actually like the least CIA-adjacent one because this one was not a front company, but did work closely with them, was a company called Evergreen Airlines, um, who were, uh, like it's, it was like the airline division of Evergreen Aircraft Corporation, I believe is the name of the company. But uh, have you ever seen a sky crane before? You know, I'm talking about yes. like the skeletonized. Uh, yeah, those were those were all produced in Oregon by Evergreen Aircraft. OK, so Evergreen had like an airline as well. Um, largely, like a lot of what they did was um, like they actually did international flights. So this is the only one of these that was like a passenger air service because uh, I didn't know that they did like international flights. Um, but they also had. I think pretty much the only Boeing 747 that was ever used as like a firefighting aircraft. Yes. Okay. So they owned that like super tanker is what they called it. So interestingly, uh, Evergreen folded finally in like 19 or 2014 or 2013. Surprise. Yeah. Um, they, they had a good run. Um, 
but uh like the u.s government still really needed that (laughs) 747 (laughs) so like and they had taken it out of service and like planned on having it ready for the next day next year fires but they were like you know we need to do this now so like like the government pretty much pumped some cash into them to get the uh the repair work done on and repair and certification work done on that 747 to get back up in the air um but uh Anyway, yeah, like they as far as compared to a lot of these other companies, uh, they were less important. But um, there's a there's an interesting quote here that um, I actually don't know who to attribute it to. Somebody with the last name Smith. Oh, was um, it me? No. Oh, <laughs> certainly not. Um, here's the quote: Wherever there was a hot spot in the world, Evergreen's helicopters and later airplanes were never far behind. Evergreen's hardware was so inextricably linked with political intrigue that rumors swirled that the company was owned owned by or a front for the U.S. Central Intelligence Agency, CIA. Indeed, several of the company's senior executives either worked for the agency or had close ties to it. Smith let, never let on, disingenuously telling the Portland Oregonian in 1988, quote-unquote, we, we, we don't know when we've ever worked for them, the CIA, but if we did, we're proud of it. We believe in patriotism, and you know, they're not the KGB. <laughs> That's what, wow. What a what? A, <laughs> they're not the KGB. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <It's> like, <laughs> what a thinly veiled way of saying, yeah, yeah, we work at CIA. All right, so the last one I'm going to talk about is going to be Air America, which is uh, and again um, another one of those companies that ended up being owned by uh, the Pacific Corporation. Um. So this is perhaps the, actually the most widely known of all of the front companies for the CIA, uh, largely due to allegations they were involved with the drug trade in Laos during the Laotian Civil War. Uh, so for those that are not familiar, the Laotian Civil War is often also referred to as the Secret War due to deep CIA involvement with the affair, uh, which lasted from 1959 to 1975 when we withdrew from South Vietnam. Um, the conflict was nominally a civil war, but in reality involved troops from North Vietnam, South Vietnam, Thailand, and the United States. Um, a big part of the reason that that, uh, that war was going on was uh, due to the fact that the Viet Cong uh, constructed a good chunk of the Ho Chi Minh Trail through Laos. And also uh, they were pumping in North Vietnamese soldiers into Laos. And basically what the United States did was arm the living crap out of Hmong villagers um, that lived in the hills and uh, got them to fight against the communist forces of the government. Um, problem was they didn't really have any money and the CIA didn't really have any money to give them. Um, so these Hmong villagers did what these Hmong villagers did best at that time, which was smuggle an absolute buttload of heroin. Literally. Uh, I mean, I don't think they had to transport that way. Like Sorry, were, I just wanted to just wanted to get it, that in. Yeah, fair enough. It doesn't matter. Um well, basically there's at the, at this point like there's been a lot of allegations that the CIA actually directly flew like smuggled shipments of heroin, but uh no actual hard evidence has ever really come out against that and uh many of the people involved basically said we ignored it. It was going on. We supported it pretty much, but like we didn't, we, like nobody ever shipped any of it. Nobody right. ever touched it. It was just kind of, we are fully aware of it, but did not, you know, did nothing to stop it. But uh, that was main, the main way that the, the war was being able to be financed. Side note, um, the Laotian Civil War was uh, the source of 
I, I saw it say like the most extensive bombing campaign in history, but I have a hard time believing it topped anything from World War Two. Sure. Um, but at least since World War Two, it was insanely intense bombing. We we carpet bombed the crap out of a lot of areas of, of Laos. We lots of destruction, a lot of cluster bombing. That's unfortunate. Yeah, especially because a lot of unexploded unexploded ordnance was left, and there's still problems with that today. Laos got a Anyway, that's uh, that's Air America. Um, almost all of these airlines ended up pretty much getting divested in the late seventies, as this uh, this whole arrangement became more and more publicly n- known. Um, and by divested, I mean like you know the company, the assets, and everything like that were sold off to private companies, and nominally the CIA stopped doing this stuff. But uh, what do you think they did, Kane? Do you think they stopped flying flights? Absolutely not. No, that's that's no absolute fact. No. Um, basically, what ended up happening is a lot of the companies that ended up uh, buying all these assets up um, just took that opportunity to contract out to do the exact same type of work. Um, sometimes that led to greater scrutiny from the public, just because some of the stuff would be public record at that point. But on the flip side, when the leadership of those companies doesn't have the same kind of control structure that a lot of the U.S. military and the CIA and stuff like that has. A lot more shady stuff can kind of get swept under the rug and covered up. Um, We're not going to go into some of the more later activities. I kind of wanted to stop what I'm talking about after this, uh, after the Vietnam War, uh, just because there's the 80s brings up a lot of crazy stuff that's going on with the cia particularly in regards to flights yeah i actually had to stop myself from bringing that up because i realized it would be you know it would tie in much better with just talking about that uh as a whole yeah and i think that's we were talking about this earlier that's that's there's so much meat to that story that there's no reason to cover that right now that's that's fully uh fully deserving of its own its own episode so yeah, I mean, I, I hate to, I hate to revisit a point we've already done to death, but we could we could fill several several weeks worth of episodes, uh, just talking about things the CIA has done that are now <laughs> a matter of public record. Yeah, I mean, again, like all of what we're talking about right now, this is stuff that I mean, granted, like. This isn't any of, like, the juicy, nitty-gritty details about the involvement of the CIA with, like, say, the Laos conflict or Indonesia or the Republic of China or... We touched... That's, like, we already... I already touched on, like, six or seven different international conflicts, many of which the U.S. was never nominally involved with. Mm-hmm. Like, Laotian Civil War, like, we had you like U.S. operatives on the ground, like fighting side by side with Laotians. Well, and we trained like fifty or sixty thousand Hmong people to fight against the Laotian government, and this is a conflict that we weren't even supposed to be involved with to begin with. But again, that was also going on on both sides. You know, like the the Chinese were supplying troops and uh, and equipment to the um, north or the uh, the Laotian government as well. So yeah, well, it was all it was all just proxy wars. When yeah, to that point, I. It's not like I'm talking about we could fill weeks talking about weird out there things the CIA does, but they got away with so much stuff that would pretty broadly be considered acts of war if they were, like, found out at the time, you know? Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Stuff that the 
I mean, that's a big part of like why they had to divest all these flight companies is that there was enough people causing a stink about them doing this because it was like they weren't particularly sneaky. They had planes get shot down regularly. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> like <laughs> I mentioned, like I didn't even go over all of the like the sh- the shoot down incidents of these airlines. And it's like I had I listed like six or seven, many of which like. You know, we're talking about U.S. citizens getting killed abroad in conflicts that, where they shouldn't have even been there. Right, yeah. The most damning, I think, of all of those was the the one in Indonesia, because that was like a conflict we were clearly not supposed to be involved with. Mm-hmm. But we had interests in, and U.S. certainly likes arming some rebels. Done oh, it once or yeah. twice. <laughs> yes, sir. Just go look, go look at the end of the movie Rocky. You know, this film is dedicated to the proud Mujahideen <laughs> fighters. <laughs> that one didn't backfire at all. Yeah. Oh, boy. <laughs> well, I wish I had some kind of bombshell to end this on, but uh, what's the moral of the story here? CIA bad? I mean, yeah, that's an easy moral. I guess yeah. <laughs> maybe if we can just... Something I was thinking about when you were talking about the Vietnam War, and I'm sorry, this is probably like a thought that has been had thousands of times but it just occurred to me now the the reason and the fact that we lost the vietnam war is really in a a, like tactical standpoint pretty much the same reason the british lost the american revolution is that wrong to say local support guerrilla warfare tactics i think i mean there's obviously different motivations on the sides but like yeah, and and the other thing is that like I mean the U.S. had like French backing and stuff like that too from from the outside, and I mean you could compare that to the Chinese involvement with the North North Vietnamese. Um, yeah. So there's definitely some parallels, but I think the one thing that really threw a wrench in it is that jungle warfare is just a complete different animal, and it was something well, that we well and exactly I mean it, it it's like the it just further down the path of guerrilla warfare like. Yeah, it's it was we it was using conventional warfare for the time on our part, which is what the British were doing, which was lining up mm-hmm. in red coats, you know. Yeah, which didn't work well with how the American rebels were fighting, which is That's true. kind of you know we were using basically World War II tactics in the jungle against people who were you know crawling through tunnels in the ground. Yeah, the tunnel thing was definitely a, a crazy switch up, but. We at least had a good amount of experience with jungle warfare in the Pacific theater in World War II. So it wasn't like it was completely foreign to us, you know, at least not to the degree that guerrilla warfare was foreign to the the British during the revolution. Yeah. There's definitely a lot of parallels. I totally get where you're coming from there. But I don't know if I would equate it super closely, I suppose. But Fair enough. Definitely, definitely good. Definitely food for thought. Yeah. Well, and uh, I guess... If you've made it this far, thanks for listening. Yes, and uh, you know certainly this episode was more encyclopedic, I guess, than the last one, which was more kind of you know an out there conspiracy theory. But there's all sorts of conspiracy theories, and I imagine we'll kind of oscillate between the two. Yeah, I mean, I like the reason that we kind of stopped ourselves is I I, I intended this to largely be just kind of a background of an intro of kind of showing how. CIA's fingers just kind of yeah, just kind of permeates everywhere, doesn't it? Not like not everywhere, but it's just like a lot, a, a lot more things than you would think. Mm-hmm. And the scope of the conflicts that they got themselves involved with, like that, like 
again, the ones we listed off were some of the less juicy ones, but I think the next episode we talk about the CIA, look, we should definitely dive into the, the juicier topic that I, I mentioned avoiding this time. Yeah. This was, uh, uh, this was a little hors d'oeuvre for the beginning of the <laughs> CIA talk, I suppose. Come fly with me, let's fly, let's fly away. If you can use some exotic booze, there's a bar in far Bombay. Come fly with me, let's fly, let's fly away. Come fly with me, let's float down to Peru. In Lama Land, there's a one-man band, and he'll toot his flute for you. Come fly with me, let's take off in the blue. Once I get you up there, 